How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I mentioned earlier, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. Although I saw something the other day that has made me question everything I thought I knew about the universe. Fortunately, I never thought I knew all that much about the universe, so it didn't take very long, but still, it was unsettling. As we've discussed on the show before at length, Nietzsche once posited that time is a real shit show. And, in a recent trip to the grocery store, I saw something that confirmed that. I was looking for some discounted Easter candy, as is my want, and due, I suspect, to the fact that this year, April 20th, was only a few days after Easter, the pickings were pretty darn slim. But while I was mentally prepared for a general dearth of egg-shaped confectionery at a discounted price, what I was not prepared for was a tub of pastel-colored candy corn labeled Easter corn. Yeah, this was disturbing to me on a number of levels. Obviously, I thought we had safely sequestered candy corn away to, at the very most, the latter quarter of the year. But apparently not. Not only that, but Easter corn? I'm sorry, it's not called Halloween corn when it comes later in the year. It's still candy. An Easter corn should obviously be a rabbit with a horn in its forehead. I mean, it's basic etymology. Also, if time is now broken to the extent that all holidays are merging into a single holiday Pangea, I would have liked a little bit more warning so that I could have time to prepare my line of turkeys stuffed with leprechauns and fireworks. Hmm, now that's magically delicious. Anyway, I find the very concept of Easter corn disturbing on a visceral level. But I did still buy some, because it was like 75% off. Anyway, let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tui. I hope that Hub and Corey will get their brooms and mopses and tidy up my heart before I hear the synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Devin, and we'll do our best to keep it tidy in there, but no promises. Defenders number 118, April 1983. The Double. Written by J.M. DeMatteis. Drotted by Don Perlin. Inked by Andy Mushinsky and Al Milgram. Lettered by Shelley Lefferman. Colored by George Russos. And edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Hellcat. Gargoyle. But mostly, Son of Satan. Previously in the Defenders. 
It's been a tumultuous, indeterminate amount of comic book time for Devil Daddy Dugger, Damon Hellstrom, a.k.a. Son of Satan. After teaming up with the Defenders to help keep his father from taking over the planet, Damon gave in to his dark nature, deciding to dabble in diabolism by taking an internship in hell with his perfidious papa. Early on in this apprenticeship, Satan took a break from his malicious mentoring to have a chat with his son and explain that in addition to being the devil, he was also a bunch of other versions of the devil, and sometimes God. Damon was understandably taken aback by this news. He didn't fully absorb his fiendish father's theological bombshell, but for some reason it made him realize that he wasn't really cut out for the family business. Renouncing his claim to the throne of hell, Son of Satan announced his intention to be a good guy again, and headed back to Earth to resume superheroing. He rejoined the Defenders, in part because he had a crush on Hellcat, aka Patsy Walker. Patsy had just returned from an emotionally fraught journey, where she had reconnected with her long-lost father. When Damon announced his feelings for her by ripping his shirt off, dragging her out of a bakery, and telling her she needed to be his girlfriend, Patsy was not exactly swept off her feet. The cat-costumed crime fighter told Damon that she didn't think she was ready for a serious relationship just then. Son of Satan didn't take this rejection particularly well. He shoved Patsy to the ground and flew off in a snit. Boo! Speaking of petulant entitled defenders, billionaire do well bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond, aka Nighthawk, was still dead, and his former employee Luann Bloom wasn't taking the news particularly well. Luann blamed the defenders for Kyle's premature death and had arranged to meet with a mysterious stranger who claimed to have proof of our titular non-team's culpability. The stranger in question turned out to be the murderous elf with a gun known as Elf with a Gun. The diminutive firearm aficionado drove Luann around in his Model T Ford until they arrived at a shack in rural South Carolina, which turned out to be a gateway to one of those weirdo dimensions filled with random geometric shapes. Gadzooks! How will Son of Satan attempt to redeem himself to readers after his recent churlish behavior? Where is Elf with a Gun taking Luann? And, feeling out of place in both hell and on Earth, where will Damon seek refuge next? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, by bullying a pregnant woman, a space castle at the end of time, and the same place a lot of people do. Academia. Son of Satan dons his professorial cosplay of a turtleneck and blazer and heads to District University in the Georgetown neighborhood of Washington, D.C. He hasn't been here in an indeterminate amount of comic book time that is probably the equivalent of a year or so, and he didn't leave a note when he left. So he's a little surprised when students and faculty members alike greet him casually when they see him. I mean, not so surprised that he asks any follow-up questions whatsoever, but still, he's surprised. He's even more surprised when his old pal and fellow professor, Serifa Thames, runs up to him, gives him a hug and kiss, and tells him that she'll see him later. Serifa is a professor of folklore and a practicing Wiccan priestess. She's also one of the few people who knows Damon's secret identity which is frankly a little surprising seeing as he has never taken any steps whatsoever to disguise himself or conceal the fact that he is the devil's bouncing baby boy. But whatever. 
Damon stammers awkwardly through an exchange with Seriffa, which she cuts short by hurrying off to teach her class. The Satan-spawned scholar next bumps into a student, who is like, Hey, Mr. Hellstrom, what are you still doing on the quad? You're gonna be late for class. I should know, because I'm also late for your class, which I frequently am, and you always give me shit about. Damon is so startled that he doesn't even reprimand the kid for using the honorific Mr. instead of Doctor or Professor. He's like, Uh, yeah, I'll be there in a few minutes. I'm just gonna go grab something from my office first. The kid is like, Uh, okay, but remember, ten minute rule. Damon is like, Is that the one where if you drop food on the floor, it's okay to eat it if you pick it up within ten minutes? The kid is like, no, that's the 10 second rule, and I don't think there's any science behind it. The 10 minute rule is that if a teacher is more than 10 minutes late for class, then the class is canceled and everyone gets to go home with no negative repercussions. Damon is like, oh, darn it, I knew I shouldn't have eaten that popsicle. The kid is like, whatever, and runs off to class. Damon is like, hmm. I wonder if there's such a thing as a 10-month rule. If so, that might explain why the students seem to like me now. They're all getting A's in my class because I haven't shown up for nearly a year. That's probably it. I'm a good teacher. With that happy thought, Damon heads towards his office. Meanwhile, the kid he was talking to rolls into class, only to find that it is well underway. Presiding over the class from behind his lectern, a professor who looks a heck of a lot like Damon Hellstrom is like, You're late again? Haven't I warned you about that? The kid is understandably confused, but shrugs it off. The familiar-looking teacher continues his lecture about what to do if you find yourself on the seventh plane of consciousness battling an omnipotent deity. Man, maybe I shouldn't have dropped out of college. I had to learn that shit on the streets. While someone who looks like him teaches advanced metaphysics to bored undergrads, Damon Hellstrom goes to his office. He's a little freaked out at how nobody seems to notice that he's been missing, and wonders what's going on. He sees a picture on his desk of him and Sarifa hanging out together and smiling, and is like, What the fuck? How is that even possible? I've never smiled happily! He stares in the mirror and talks to himself for a while, wondering out loud whether he is losing his shit. The door to the office opens, and in walks Damon Hellstrom. He's like, No need to wonder, you are definitely losing your shit. Damon 1 is like, Wah, huh? Damon 2 is like, Nice to meet you, I'm Damon Hellstrom. Damon 1 is like, No. I'm Damon Hellstrom. Damon, too, is like, I know you think you are, and I'll call you that if it makes things easier, but you really aren't. Here, let's use our magic powers on each other, and you can see that I'm telling you the truth about being you. The two Damons grab each other by the temples, like they're trying to do a Vulcan mind meld thing on each other, and use their magic devil powers. Damon 1 is like, Oh shit, this guy really is me! But also, I'm me? This is confusing. He staggers out of the office and wanders away. Once he's gone, Damon too is like, Man, I really hope he just goes away. 
not an uncommon reaction to a conversation with Damon Hellstrom. Meanwhile, in the Manhattan brownstone that the defenders are currently calling home, Patsy Walker is hunched over her typewriter, working on her memoirs. It's not going great. Gargoyle stops by with a cup of coffee for her and is like, Having trouble writing? Patsy's like, Yup. Gargoyle is like, Have you tried pacing around? Patsy is like, Of course I tried pacing around. Gargoyle is like, Well, how about doing the dishes and tidying up the house? Patsy's like, I would, but we've got a housekeeper. Gargoyle is like, Eh, compulsively checking your social media? Patsy's like, It's 1983, that doesn't exist yet. Gargoyle is like, Then I'm out of ideas. I don't know how someone could possibly be expected to write under those circumstances. Yeah, you and me both, Gargoyle. Patsy is like, Well, I hope I snap out of it soon. This writer's block is really bugging me. Gargoyle is like, Is that all that's bugging you? You're not thinking about a certain devil-dadded jerkhole, are you? Patsy's like, Yeah, I guess I am. He was such a violent, temperamental, obsessive asshole last time we talked. I'm a little bit psychic now, probably on account of I'm a comic book character with red hair, and I get the sense that there's something really off about him. Frankly, I'm concerned. Gargoyle is like, Yeah, concerned with how bad you want to smooch him. Damn it, Gargoyle. As Gargoyle tries to cajole Patsy into reconciling with a self-obsessed narcissist who behaved abusively the last time they interacted, the narcissist in question is wandering around the streets of Arlington, Virginia, a suburb of D.C. He finds himself drawn to a particular home and rings the doorbell. His old pal Serifa Thames answers the door. She's delighted to see him and welcomes him inside. She's like, Hey, you're home early. I'm just making dinner. Try this risotto. Damon is like, No, I don't want to taste risotto. I want to yell at you about my identity crisis. Serifa is like, What is up with you lately? You're being a total weirdo. Damon is like, No, I'm not. I'm a regular guy. To drive this point home, he punches the pot of risotto off the stove, rips off his shirt, and summons his magic trident. Sarifa falls to the floor, startled by the vehemence of Damon's sudden rage. Suddenly, the door slams open. Damon 2 walks in and is like, What the fuck is wrong with you? Damon 1 is like, That's what I'm trying to figure out, and if you know a better way to get answers than yelling and risotto punching, I would love to hear it. Damon, too, helps Sarifa to her feet and is like, Honey, why don't you go into the other room? You can use your magic to help me from there. Once Sarifa is gone, Damon, too, closes the door behind her and is like, Look, I tried to be cool about this, but bullying my pregnant wife and punching her risotto is a step too far. Damon, one, is like, Oh, shit, Sarifa is pregnant? And your wife? I didn't know that when I punched the pot of risotto. Damon 2 is like, well, just don't punch any risotto. How hard is that? Damon 1 is like, what's the big deal? It's still good. Ten minute rule. Damon 2 is like, that's not a thing. He rips off his shirt and summons his trident. Damon 1 is like, look, 
we both say that we're the real Damon Hellstrom. How's about we punch and do magic at each other until one of us is dead? Damon, too, is like, fine, but my wife will be helping me from the other room by doing some of her wicked magic. Damon, one, is like, fine. The two Damons start punching and doing magic at each other. After a brief struggle, Damon 2 gets the early advantage. He stands over Damon 1 and prepares to drive his trident through his double's heart. Meanwhile, in a weirdo dimension filled with random geometric shapes, Elf with a gun is driving Luann Bloom around in a Model T Ford. Luann is like, where are we going? Elf with a gun is like, we're going to the end of time to meet with our boss. Look, here we are. Oh, and also most of your memories are bullshit, and maybe you're a robot or something? The Model T pulls up to a giant space castle. An old guy with a suit and a bolo tie greets them and is like, Okay, Agent 334A W, the tribunal is starting to get antsy. Tell TB number 6C to make its report. Elf with a gun turns to Luann and is like, Okay, TB number 6C, you heard the guy. Time to make your report. Luann is very confused. She's not the only one. Back in Sarifa's kitchen, Damon 1 does a leg sweep thing on Damon 2 and manages to get the upper hand. He starts choking Damon 2 with his trident and is like, Tell me who you are! Damon 2 is like, I already told you, I'm Damon Hellstrom! Damon 1 is like, no, you aren't. Damon 2 is like, I am so. And what's more, I'm way better at being Damon than you are. I'm a good teacher, a good husband, and I'm going to be a good dad. I am living the life you always wanted, but were too far up your ass to live. Damon 1 is caught off by this declaration, and his grip on the trident slips. Damon 2 takes advantage of the distraction. He flips his rival off of him and kicks him in the face. Damon 2 again stands poised over Damon 1 and prepares to thrust his trident through his heart. Damon 1 is like, Ah, just go ahead and murder me already. You're right. You're a much better me than I am. He shuts his eyes and prepares to meet his maker. Or re-meet his maker, I guess, seeing as he's already met the devil, who is his maker both in the sense that he is his father and in the sense that he's secretly God. But then an odd thing happens. When Damon 1 closes his eyes, he thinks about Patsy, and his unhealthy fixation on her makes his hellborn powers grow three sizes that day. Damon 1 grabs the tines of Damon 2's trident and forces the magic back up through the length of the weapon at his attacker. When the hellfire reaches Damon 2, he screams in pain, and his image shimmers and changes into that of a kind of generic-looking demon. Damon 1, who I guess I can go back to just calling Damon, seeing as we just learned that the other Damon is not, in fact, Damon, looks down at his vanquished foe and is like, Hey, don't I know you from hell? You look really familiar. Can't seem to recall your name, though. The demon is like, Yeah, well, that's because your dad never bothered to give me a name. He made me as kind of a shitty prank to see what would happen if he gave a demon a soul and feelings. What happened was, I hated hell, and I was miserable all the time. He thought it was hilarious. Asshole. 
but then I escaped and came to Earth. I found that you had abandoned your life, a life that I had always wanted and had always dreamed of, so I just kind of took it. And you know what? I was a way better Damon Hellstrom than you ever were. Damon is like, well, that's a mean thing to say. Just for that, I'm going to murder you. He prepares to strike, but before he gets the chance, Sarifa bursts into the room and is like, don't hurt him. Damon is like, why not? He's a demon. Sarifa is like, I don't care. I love him. When we first started dating, I thought he was you. But then I figured out a secret, and I still loved him. He's a good dude. We figured you'd come back eventually, but we were just kind of hoping you'd be messed up enough that we could convince you you weren't you, and maybe you'd just go away again. Either that or we'd kill you. But we probably would have felt bad about it. The demon is like, yeah, in retrospect, murdering you would have been kind of a dick move. Sorry about that. Tell you what, if you don't kill me, I promise I'll stop dressing up as you and will just turn myself into some random dude. I'd say being 2020, I probably should have gone ahead and done that in the first place. Damon is like, fine, I won't kill you. Guess I'll just go sit on a park bench and brood darkly. With tears in his eyes, Damon walks slowly away. Sarifa and the demon are like, oh, okay, bye. Once he's gotten a few blocks away, Damon finds a park bench. He sits down on it and does some serious brooding. The end. On the plus side, seeing as how Damon 2 is gone now, I guess all of his students get automatic A's. Hooray for the 10-month rule! Although, if food has been on your floor for 10 months, you probably shouldn't eat it. Joining me once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, what's your favorite kind of onion? Oh, good question. I don't have a favorite, but I have three top choices for different applications. Okay, let's hear them. I like for caramelizing a uh, cipollini onion. Hmm, see, I tend to go with a Walla Walla sweet. Also very good. Good, just all-purpose for raw application is just your standard white onion. Like if you're putting your uh, diced onions and cilantro on top of some tacos. Okay. Good old white onion. Mm -hmm. And then for uh, pickling and pretty stuff. Interesting. I prefer, I think, for a raw onion, I, I usually prefer a red to a white. Ooh, spicy. A little bit. I also tend to prefer a red for sautéing. Also, want to just throw these out there. Hmm. If you don't got a lot of time but you want a lot of onion for your dish. Mm -hmm. Tough to go wrong with a shallot. Oh, shallots are delicious. They pack a lot of onion into a little onion. They do, but conversely, they can also sort of almost melt into a, a dish, so they're like supporting it from the background, whereas it's not so much of a sulfur-forward mm. <laughs> approach. See, if I want a subtler onion, I'll usually go for a green onion. Oh, yeah. A, a nice scallion. Or even a leek. Sure. The big daddy of the green onions. Yeah, I tend to think of leeks as a different category, but you're right. They, they are kind of an onion. Yeah, they're very oniony. And that's been an episode of <laughs> Onions with Hub and Corey.
Well, I always ask you how it's going, and you always seem a little bit taken aback by the question, so I thought I'd try something different this week. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I also had a, an onion story recently. Oh, really? I, I was at the store, and uh, I was having an internal discussion that then became an external discussion at an inopportune moment. Oh. But I was picking up an onion, and I was perusing the different kinds that there were. Uh-huh. And inside my head, I was thinking, yellow onions are a lot cheaper. But I like red onions better. And then I said aloud to myself, I deserve to have nice things, and picked up a red onion, and then turned around and saw that there was somebody right next to me. <laughs> Oof. But it's important to treat yourself to little things like spending an extra 20 cents a pound on an onion. Sure. Yeah, life is short. Yeah. Grab it by the onions. Well, Corey. <sighs> I kind of would rather just keep talking about onions. <laughs> I know, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> but we should probably talk about this comic book. Okay. So, Corey, what did you think of this comic book? It reinforced that I don't care that much for the character as he's written maybe he'll develop as he discovers his true self but i don't know powerful out of touch with oneself kind of incel guy it's just like yeah i keep reading about it it's a bummer because honestly i think this is a good issue i think it's a well-written issue i think it tells a potentially interesting story it raises some interesting philosophical points, which is something that J.M. DeMatteis does a lot, and I think generally does very well. But I wish it had come out maybe three issues ago. If this had been issue 115 of The Defenders, and it had happened before Damon had been such a dick in his interaction with Patsy, and had been so abusive and self-centered and megalomaniacal and narcissistic, then I think it would have made more sense and I would have been more interested in the story. But by the time I'm cracking this comic book open, he's done enough that I'm kind of written him off as a character, so I don't care about him at all. Yeah, it's almost as if it were written as an arc where, okay, we're going to portray Damon being real bad so he can find himself and then become good. But, like you said... He's just such a jerk that by the time you're done with the doing real bad stuff, you don't really care anymore. You're just like, I'm sick of this guy. Right. And he's also not a character that I had a ton of emotional baggage for going into the story before it got to the point where he was being really bad. He was kind of coasting on. He had an interesting sartorial look. And I like the idea of the character. But he wasn't somebody that I knew really well that I already cared about a ton before he started acting like a total dickbag. Also, I think it just maybe would have made more sense if this story had come before he was such a dick to Patsy, so that you see that, like, no, he's emotionally fraught going into that scene. He's been through all of this shit. You know, like, he's on his last edge, and yes, he's still being an asshole, but here's where those feelings are coming from. It just didn't work for me on an emotional level. I think intellectually, it's fine. It's a good issue. It's just... I had trouble caring about it because I don't care about the character. Yeah. Like, it ends with him sitting, you know, lonely and sad on a park bench being like, oh, I don't know myself. I got to grow. But he's still just like his path to getting there is so shitty where 
I'm so mad at him for punching that pot of risotto off of Zarefa's stove. Yeah. What a jerk. And it's now becoming a pattern that he ruins people's experiences with delicious food right before becoming an abusive asshole. I don't care for it. No. He fucked up Patsy buying Napoleons, and now he's fucked up some pretty good-looking risotto there. And made an enormous mess and potentially caused a safety issue. Yeah. Like, I know he's pretty strong and powerful, but if you punch a hot pot of food, you're gonna hurt yourself pretty bad, (laughs) and it's gonna be hard to clean it up. Not cool. Not cool at all. Plus, she's pregnant. Yeah. Well, to be fair, he didn't know that before he punched the risotto, but still. (laughs) That's fair. You should, before punching risotto, you should operate under the assumption that everyone around you is pregnant. It's basic safety tips. They teach that in culinary school. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Or at least ask. (laughs) Right. Hey, is it cool if I punch this risotto? I don't want to upset your pregnancy. (laughs) Well, okay, you shouldn't say that because if you ask if somebody is pregnant and they're not pregnant. Which is why you shouldn't listen to everything they tell you in cooking school because they just told me to assume everybody's pregnant. Well, you assume. You don't ask. Right. But you you made the assumption. So you gotta, it's just a little bit of honesty is gonna slip out when you're asking if you can punch that pot of risotto. Sure, right? sure. If sure. you're a good person. That's a good point, Corey. What else do they teach you in culinary school that you should probably ignore? Oh, that's it. That's the only thing. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't know. I never went to culinary school. I just have, like, ideas about what it must be like. Yeah, no, I went to the culinary school of hard knocks. Oh. Yeah. What did they uh, teach you there that you shouldn't do? It was mostly knife safety stuff. Oh, that seems reasonable. Yeah, no, Culinary School of Hard Knocks is great. Oh, okay. Yeah, a sharp knife is uh, less dangerous than a dull knife. Yeah, yeah, cleaner cut. Yeah. You need to make the claw when you're chopping, so worst case, you, uh, you, you chop your fingernail. Fingernail. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Pinch of uh, baking soda in your beans as they're soaking and make it less gassy. Sure. Uh-huh. If you uh, cook garbanzo beans with a little bit of baking soda in them, then it makes for a uh, softer uh, hummus. Oh, nice. And then you don't need to necessarily take all of the shells off. I was told that a tablespoon or two of ice cold water right before you blend the hummus helps get a really creamy texture. Mm. When you're making a pie, freeze the butter beforehand and then use a cheese grater on it. That is ingenious. Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's what they teach in the culinary school of hard knocks. That's right. Also... When you make a punch, don't put your thumb inside the fist. No, don't do that. That's terrible. Yeah. Okay. Well, back to this one. (laughs) (laughs) So we've discussed this before, but there is no way that Damon doesn't have tenure, right? Well, I think before we were assuming the reason he did was because he could disappear for a year and come back and it's fine right sure but we just learned that mr no name fake but better damon um has been taking his place so nobody knew he was gone okay but now we have different reasons to assume that he has tenure one the course that he is teaching he is teaching his undergrad students how to battle god on the seventh plane of consciousness (laughs) 
I feel like if he didn't have tenure, he would maybe not be allowed to teach that. I feel like he's just going off the rails and being able to come up with his own lesson plan at this point. Mm. Also, I feel like if he didn't have tenure, there would be way less reason for that demon to try to overtake his identity. (laughs) Or like once he did, Serifa, who also teaches at the same university, would be like, hey, we should just go someplace else and start a new life. But I feel like she's like, well, I mean, you're not, it's not like you're not going to give up tenure. Right. So we're going to stick around and fight this out, which is a ridiculous plan on every level. Yep. But makes more sense if they're motivated by tenure. Yeah. No, okay. Fair point. It's settled. I don't know. How does that process work? Is there like a governing academic body that decides if you get it, you got to go? There's, it's a whole long, complicated process that they change as you're applying for it. And it's a real to do. Okay. Well, anyway, those guys did a terrible job giving this guy tenure. I don't think it was a wise choice. I mean, he's head of the parapsychology department at District University, mm-hmm. which I was very confused by because every time he has discussed his job in the past, he has talked about going back to Georgetown. But in this issue, we, or at least I, because I hadn't known this before, find out that he teaches at District University, which is in Georgetown. Oh, not Georgetown, the university. Yeah, which they must have built the university there on purpose, right? I would imagine. Try to really, like, skate on the coattails. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that one of the buildings, I think, was called Perlin Hall? There's Perlin Hall. There's also Perlin Auditorium. Oh, wow. That's... So apparently Perlin was a big donator to this university. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> Very powerful alumni. Maybe that's why Son of Satan got tenure there, uh... because he's got a lot of sway with the boosters. Yeesh. The boosters who probably also are very supportive of the basketball team, the Georgetown Hoopsters. Gotta love, gotta love the Hoopsters. <laughs> that is a great name for a university's basketball team, I gotta say. It is not just the basketball team, though, because that's how mascots work. So presumably, their football team is also called the Georgetown Hoopsters. Huh? Yeah, I mean, like, you've got one mascot for the entire university. So any of the athletic clubs are going to have the same mascot. Wait, so... So it would be the football team would be the Georgetown Hoopsters, the baseball team, Georgetown Hoopsters. I don't know much about sports, but is that how it works in... Like, is, like, the Oregon Ducks is a basketball team and a football team? Yeah. Oh. And uh, they can't have any other teams that aren't named the Ducks? No, that's the, the university's mascot. I guess just... People differentiate by the different sports and the size of the balls and whatnot. Yeah, I don't think they get too confused which team they're playing for very often. Oh, that's cool. They're usually able to figure it out from context. Okay, what about this one? Hey, did you catch the uh, Ducks game last Saturday? Well, there's usually, they play in different seasons. Oh, man. You you just got so many answers for this (laughs) sports thing. Sorry. It's okay. I do really like the idea, though, of a basketball team named the Hoopsters. It reminds me of my favorite team name for a baseball team i think we may have discussed it on the show before that the oakland athletics Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's the only team that is named an adjective that i can think of in any major sport and i love that their name is the oakland good at sports i like that too i like their colors too Mm -hmm. sometimes they have a picture of an elephant who i think is their unofficial mascot but it's a weird 
He's a goat. Yeah, he's a very athletic elephant, I would imagine. He'd have to be. Yeah. Hey guys, this is Editor Hub here in the future with some more information about the Oakland Athletics elephant mascot. The mascot is actually a holdover from when they were the Philadelphia Athletics, and they had a rivalry with the New York Giants back in 1902. The Athletics had just spent a bunch of money acquiring such top-name talent as Rube Waddell and Topsy Hartzell, which are some fucking grade-A baseball names. Anyway, the New York Giants' new manager, John McGraw, thought that the Philadelphia team had overspent and was asked about it in a press conference and said, The Philadelphia club will make no money. They have a big white elephant on their hands. Which, as we all know, is the worst kind of elephant and the worst kind of gift exchange. You always end up with a s'mores maker. You know what a s'mores maker is? A stick! That's all you need to make a s'more. Anyway, when the A's owner, Connie Mack, found out about these comments, he thought they were pretty funny and made a white elephant the team's unofficial mascot. Three years later, the two teams faced each other in the World Series, and Connie Mack presented John McGraw with a statue of an elephant. Pretty good. Although if you really wanted to give him the business, you would have given him a s'mores maker. Anyway, both of those teams are now in the Bay Area, which I think is kind of fun. Okay, back to the show. But yeah, uh, I like uh, Georgetown good at basketballs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, uh, I think, the opening page. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a fun comic. Mm-hmm. Nope. No. You know what else wasn't fun about this comic? Mm. The 80s suck. Do you know how I know the 80s suck? Mm, you lived through them? Okay, there is that. But more importantly, this issue takes place on a college campus, and there is not a picket sign to be seen in the entire issue. That is some fucking bullshit. It's a very, you're saying it's a very complicit era? Or? Yeah. Oh, okay. Very conservative. A lot of Alex P. Keatons out there. Loving Reagan. Mm. Boo. Mm-hmm. Boo Reagan. Got it. I'm trying to scare him. Good job. Like a ghost. Uh-huh. Although he probably wouldn't be scared of a ghost right now because he's a ghost. Mm-hmm. Because he's dead. Mm-hmm. You know who I didn't hate in this comic book? Elf with a gun. No, I do still hate Elf oh, with a gun. okay. That's I, a good guess, though. I give up. Who? No. Fake Damon. Yeah. That guy seemed okay. He was so nice. I mean, he's dumb as shit. Like, I mean, he can, he's been teaching a parapsychology course for a year. He can't be that dumb. And doing a really good job with it. Like, you, you saw when Damon first gets on campus, he's like, What's going on? The students don't seem to hate me. People are being nice to me. This isn't my normal experience. Mm-hmm. But we find out his backstory is he was a demon that the devil made as a prank. Mm-hmm. Like, he made a demon wrong to be funny. To amuse himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, huh, I'm going to give him feelings. <laughs> Make him nice. Yeah. He's going to fucking hate that. It'll be hilarious. Hey, me, 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 and me, get over here, get a load of what I'm doing to this poor asshole. Mm -hmm. But he gets a chance to escape when the hell dimensions merge with Earth and whatever, all that shit happened Mm -hmm. around the Defenders 100. He comes to Earth at that point, and then it's like, oh, thank God I was able to escape. So... I gotta keep a low profile, blend in, I can assume any identity in the universe. You know what I'm gonna go for? The Devil's Son. 
Mm-hmm. Come on, buddy. Wow. Sir, uh, write what you know. <laughs> I guess. Okay, speaking of writing what you know, hmm. Patsy, working on her memoir, says when she is having some problems with writer's block, I guess I'm not going to be given a nice Nina run for her money. Yeah, I had some notes on that. Is is she just writing an erotic memoir? or I would assume okay. from that. I hadn't thought that going into it. But when she is, you know, really pouring over the first paragraph of her memoir and is just like, ooh, I'm no Anais Nin, but I'll get there. Yeah, that seems strange. I'm not too familiar with her body of work. I did, I think, in high school read some of her, her racy stuff. But, yeah, I... Uh, does she have non-erotic stuff well one would assume that her it was her memoir her diaries where there were many volumes of that that were published uh i also have uh just read the delta venus erotica so that that's what i'm basing it on she did write some other stuff but it's certainly what she is best known for is her erotica hey guys this is editor hub again turns out i'm a dumb In addition to her seven-volume diary, Anais Nin also published, I believe, eight books of non-erotic fiction. It's just that me and Corey only read the dirty stuff. Sorry. So, I was very disappointed by Patsy's ergonomic setup. Yeah. She's sitting on the edge of her bed with, like, a typewriter on a, like, a TV tray. Mm Mm-hmm. That's terrible for your posture. Yeah, I mean... That is sometimes how I do my writing setup. I'll bring a TV tray over to the sofa if just like Finley's needing more attention so that he can get up on me while I'm writing. But I, yeah, I I agree. It it is maybe not the best situation, but also Patsy's young and an athlete and she probably doesn't have to worry about her back as much. Now I'm disappointed at your ergonomic setup too, Hub. I'm sorry. Just because I care. I know. It's not that better, honestly, than my desk. My desk is way too low. That's a small person's desk. It is. But I have a small person's room. (laughs) I need room for all of these comics. That's true. I did like that Gargoyle brought her a hot beverage while she was writing. Mm -hmm. I like that he's trying to be supportive. I did not like that he is really pushing her and... Damon as an issue, it seemed like. She's like, oh, writing's really difficult. I'm going through all this stuff. And he gets this, like, teasing look on his face. He's like, oh, yeah? What about Damon? Are you thinking about him, too? (laughs) And she's like, yeah, you got me. I am. I'm really worried about him because uh, I'm a little bit psychic, and it seems like he's a real piece of shit. (laughs) And uh, so I'm concerned for him. And... Ike won't stop pushing the issue. Like, his response to that is like, Oh, concerned are you? Concerned with how bad you want to bone him? <laughs> like, he doesn't say the last part out loud, but his expression. It's, an, it's Yeah. Give it a fucking rest. Yeah. I was thinking, as I often do when Gargoyle shows up, A, does he ever change out of that outfit? B, if so, how many copies of that weird purple bondage gear does he have? I gotta believe it's a bespoke item. I don't think he probably has too many of them, which means it probably does not smell very good. That's what I was worried about. Yeah, I thought that was why you were getting at it. It does seem like it is some smelly purple leather bondage gear that he is wearing 
really for no reason. Like, we've seen that he can wear a trench coat, so he could wear different clothing over his gargoyle body. It's not a great look for him. No, no, and I imagine it having what, when I was a child, I thought of as like a old person's house smell, which is like mothballs and Bengay, like a liniment of some sort. Yeah. I was thinking about that. When I used to bartend, there were a bunch of like really old people who were regulars at the bar. There was a guy named Myron, and he definitely had the old person smell. But I was wondering, like, in the 40s, did young people smell like that? Like, have they always smelled like that, and then they've just gotten older, or is it a specific old person smell? Because part of it is, yeah, there's the liniment thing, but there's also, like, Old Spice. There are certain scents that were common it's, it's, then that I now associate with old people. Yes, yeah. So, I don't know, 30, 40 years from now, that young bartender's going to be like, God, smells like axe in here. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Is this an old convention or what? Yeah. Ugh. I wonder to what extent Gargoyle's outfit is him trying to blend in with young people. If, like, that is his, like, well, this is how young people dress, right? I want to be young and hip. We're all wearing purple bondage gear, right? I just saw Eddie Murphy's stand-up special. This is a normal outfit. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, I think that's probably a big part of it, too. Mm-hmm. I will say the art in this issue I thought was really good. We have a different inking team again. It is one that we've seen before. It is Andy Mushinsky, and he does a great job, uh, and he's assisted by Al Milgram, who is also the editor of this issue. But the art looks great, and I really appreciated that. It was a little bit hard to keep track of in the fight scene which Damon was which. I liked that. I did too, and I think it kind of forced the issue of, well, does it matter? Like, he's losing track of which Damon is him. Like, I don't know, ship a Theseus type situation. Like, he was him, but this other guy's better at being him than he is, and he had kind of given up that identity, which Damon is the real one. But yeah, the, the quality of the art, I think, helped with that and helped blur that line. And, uh, yeah, I appreciate that they didn't go the easier route of the, like, Superman 3 Clark Kent versus Superman fight, you know? Mm -hmm. They're both in the Son of Satan gear. Yeah, the art also had a nice, I don't know, shadowy or dark, almost gothy-like quality to it, which was perfect for the issue. It worked both for the content of the issue and kind of for Damon's character, both the good and the bad of him, is that he is a self-obsessed, brooding, almost Byronic-type character, you know? He's a gothic romance hero in that he is self-obsessed and brooding, and also in that he is an asshole. <laughs> yeah. The thing that bothered me about the way that he won the fight was, by the power of contradiction, <laughs> I will blast you. Yeah, well, that and he was able to channel his feelings of obsession for Patsy. And that made him strong, which gross, but also did lead me to wonder if maybe this issue was supposed to come out before his recent dealings with Patsy. I, I think in a lot of ways that would make more sense. Yeah, I, I could see that. But I mean, clearly it's structured after, right? Because he's reflecting on, oh, man, I was such a dick to her. I mean, it was justified, but whoa. <laughs> yeah, 
man, I want to like Son of Satan so much, and I, I just don't. No, he's not likable. No, it's a shame. And he's not even unlikable in a particularly fun way, which was what I initially liked about him. Yeah. Like, I had described him when he first started showing up in The Defenders as a fun midway point between Steve and Namor. Mm-hmm. And he is both, like, sartorially and in terms of his look and in terms of his temperament. But, uh, yeah, now he's just gone full incel and fuck this guy. Yeah, I wish he had never opened his heart to love, <laughs> as he describes it. I wish he had never opened his mouth. <laughs> just stand there and look pretty, son of Satan. So... We have the interlude where Patsy is lamenting the fact that she's no Anias Nin. Mm -hmm. We also have the other interlude, which you referred to briefly, the Elf with a Gun interlude. What'd you think of that? I thought I was confused. Well, maybe I can clear things up a little bit. As near as I can tell, Elf with a Gun is driving Luann Bloom, Kyle's former nurse, in his Model T that starts flying, mm -hmm. and they go to another dimension where there's a castle at the end of time, mm -hmm. and maybe Luann Bloom isn't Luann Bloom, mm -hmm. even though she's always thought that she was, but she's starting to get her memory of something else back, mm -hmm. and they go and talk to Colonel Sanders, who's the head of a tribunal, and calls them Agent Number 334AZ. And, uh, they're going to judge them. Yeah, I got all that. Oh, okay. Well, what was confusing for you then? <laughs> oh, just, uh, the lack of context around all that. Oh, yeah. No, that's, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to help. That's okay. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck they're doing with the elf with the gun thing. I've never known what the fuck they were doing with elf with a gun, but part of the, I think, appeal of the character initially was that he was a non-sequitur, and now they're trying to explain him and just make the character weird instead of a non-sequitur. And I don't want the explanation. I just want him to go away. Yeah, that's my strong preference. Yeah, it doesn't seem like he's going to, though. And also, maybe Luann Bloom is an elf with a gun? Or, like... A container of information. They, I think at some point they refer to her as a thing or an it. Huh. A robot? Yeah, maybe she's a robot. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I like the cover of this issue a lot. Yeah. It's really cool looking. It is Son of Satan about to get stabbed with a trident by Son of Satan. And uh, it's cool. Like, he's drawn with a lot of nuance and shading, and then the whole background is a very severe example of the Ben Day dots, mm -hmm. where you see the printing process is separated to the point where you can see the little dots from the coloring process. And it is just a really nice piece of, like, pop art. And it looks real cool. Yeah. Yeah, I like the dots also. That was, I think, by far my favorite thing about the issue cover yeah mm, that's good cover for some reason this issue reminded me of there was a show i was watching on tv the other day that was talking about 
problems with the way that law enforcement interrogations work. Yeah. And how the interrogators are basically able to, to lie to people and tell them that they have evidence they don't have and all this stuff. And that a whole bunch of confessions that wind up getting entered as part of the legal process are false. It's just people either getting convinced that they did something mm -hmm. that they didn't do or they just want to go home. And so they say, yeah, I did it, whatever. So mm -hmm. that they can like, there's just all these problems with if somebody's good enough at understanding psychology, they can mess with your noodle mm -hmm. and make you doubt your own memories. And, and I guess that extends to a sense of self here. Yeah. That was something that I really appreciated about the fake Damon character. I mean, if you want to be more sinister than that was what he was trying to do. And I think that was what they were trying to evoke that that was what he was going for. But I think I've also just seen in life people do the thing where you get caught in a very obvious lie and then just double down on it. You see little kids do it where it's like, did you take that ball? And the kid's like, no. I'm like, you're holding the ball right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least try to hide it. But I appreciated seeing the demon just be like, are you dressing up like me? No, I am you. You're not you. Go mm -hmm. away. That's basically what he says. Uh-huh. Yeah. And there is that moment, too, after their initial confrontation where it's like, oh, shit, is this actually working? Is he, is he just going to go away? But after he leaves where you see him just plead quietly to no one in particular please just go away please just go away that really does change the tone of the comic book and gives you early sympathy rather than just the confusion of wait which Damon is the real one and what's going on here having the sympathy for the character that you you start to suspect oh he's the doppelganger but also he's the one I'm rooting for mm -hmm. I thought that was really cool yeah yeah, Damon, real Damon's not sympathetic. If he were, you could have some empathy, right? Can you imagine meeting a better version of yourself? Yeah, How much no that would shit. suck. No <laughs> shit. Like, oh, he is so much better at living my life than I was. I had made, frankly, a real hash of things. And then he comes in and he's dating the girl that I always refused to date even though I liked her and they're married and now she's pregnant and he the students like him <laughs> and he's good at his job and you ask her and she's like well yeah I mean he was like you but nice yeah <laughs> totally <laughs> ouch yeah it freaked me out at first because I was like wait it's it's like he's Damon but uh not a dick yeah okay well I just don't give a shit I'm, I'm with this one. Yeah, that's the closest I got to empathy in the issue was just putting myself in that situation of like, oh, man, that would be rough. Yeah. But, but no, no, <laughs> he, he doesn't deserve our sympathy. And so he doesn't get it. Risotto punching dickhead. Oh, shit. It took her hours to dice those shallots that finely. <laughs> oh, otherwise, they would have overpowered the dish. Exactly. Yeah, you got to, you know, yeah, caramelize them a little bit first. Mm -hmm. Really let him melt into the sauce. And then, boom, it's on the floor. And the stove and that little crack between the stove and the cabinet. Oh my god, that's never coming out. Nope. And there's dairy in that too, probably. The whole kitchen's gonna smell like weak old gargoyle. <laughs> is, this, is this an old person's risotto? <laughs> Fake Damon's gonna come home from work and be like, 
Was Isaac over here? <laughs> it smells like fucking purple bondage leather in here. Uh, well, you want to get into the minutia? Yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> yep. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts. We got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what category do you feel like starting off with? I feel like I always say this, but let's talk about those hoopsters. Okay, sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion are you most interested in in this comic? Well, despite your disparaging the 80s in general, the opening page of this college campus life is pretty fun. Yeah, we do get the nice uh, yellow windbreaker of the Georgetown hoopsters, which... I do like that windbreaker. And I'm glad that they did have the disambiguation that it is not, in fact, Georgetown University, because otherwise I would have spent the entire issue scanning the background trying to find Patrick Ewing, because those were the years he was at Georgetown. So, yeah, I I like that it was not a Hoyas jacket. It was a Hoopsters jacket, and it was a cool-looking windbreaker. So we had that. We also had Damon striding across campus cutting a pretty good figure in his very 80s blazer and, you know, tight pants, but with a a really big, maybe maroon turtleneck. Mm -hmm. And we see that that is basically the professorial uniform, and that is driven home by the fact that his double, who did not plan in advance, is wearing the exact same outfit. So I think that is just like his professor cosplay. Mm -hmm. And we see a number of people throughout the issue wearing turtlenecks with blazers and just turtlenecks in general, both male and female, which really does, you know, drive home. This is a uh, campus story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Takes place in the hallowed halls of academia at District University. Good old DU. Mm. But you know who's not wearing a turtleneck on page three is uh, Sarifa. Yeah, Sarifa Thames, I think. Yeah. T-H-A-M-E-S, and so I'm not sure if it's supposed to be the like, same like as the, the river. river. Yeah, so Sarifa Thames. Yeah. She's rad. I like this character a lot. I do too. Her clothing choice is weird. More conservative than you would think, given her Wiccan background, that she is a practicing Wiccan. You would expect to see maybe a little bit more hippie touches mm-hmm. on her, but instead she's wearing like a peasant blouse, but that's very fluffy in the front. I know, I was thinking like Jane Austen cosplay. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, and then you see that kind of theme carried forward when she's cooking and she's wearing the frilly white apron as she's cooking. It's a very conservative look for her, which Mm -hmm. was surprising. Yeah. I also would be remiss if I did not mention this is maybe fashion adjacent, but I talked about Gargoyle bringing Patsy a hot mug of something. That mug is fucking rad. It's a weird backgammon mug. It's got all these like little triangles coming up, and then it looks like it could rotate at half. It's like bifurcated in a weird way. That mug made it into my notes also. I think I wrote something like, terrible ergonomics, nice mug. Tough but fair. Thank you. Any other fashion you wanted to specifically call out? There is one scene where there's a student wearing what appears to be a very tiny red cowboy hat. Yeah, I know the guy you're talking about. It's like, that was that a thing in the 80s or did the art just 
falter a little bit <laughs> on scale. Maybe there was either somebody farther away behind him wearing a regular sized cowboy hat, and it was just a perspective thing, uh, or it was a tiny hat. I mean, there were tiny hats. I remember one of the characters on uh, In Living Color. That was the 80s. Damon Wayne's uh, offensive stereotype of a gay man. He wore a little hat like that. I'm going to go on record saying I don't like tiny hats. I don't either. I'm not, in general, a fan of uh, tiny accessories like that. I, don't, I didn't like the tiny backpack thing. Mm-hmm. I don't like the tiny hats. Mm-hmm. We're regular sized things. What other uh, tiny things are there for fashion? That's it, right? Just hats and backpacks. I think just hats and backpacks. I'm trying to think of any others. For a while, cell phones were comically tiny. Mm-hmm. And then they started getting bigger, and then they started getting smaller again. Just fluctuating size of cell phones. But mm-hmm. uh, I, di- I didn't care for the really tiny ones of those, either. Definitely hard to use. Mm. And uh, cars. I don't care for clown cars. Oh, like you smart know? cars? No, I mean clown cars, specifically. Like, when you get, like, 12 or 15 clowns, uh, packed into a tiny Volkswagen. I don't care for that. Volkswagens are clown cars? When they're exclusively driven by clowns. <laughs> oh, uh, okay. Not every Volkswagen is a clown car, but I think sure every clown car said. is a Volkswagen. That's what I'm saying. I know some VW drivers out here are going to be a little miffed with you. <laughs> what are they going to do? Step on me with their giant shoes? They're not clowns. <laughs> Aren't they, though? See, you did it again. Oh, dear. Yep. Behold or be gone. Using your own name as an exclamation. When we open this comic book, I'm not sure if that is the intent, but as a continuation of the captioning, it really looks like Son of Satan is looking at himself on campus and exclaiming in disbelief, Son of Satan! Hmm. I think we're supposed to see that as a continuation of his thought bubble, but it looks like what is happening is a similar thing that I experienced with the Red Onion scenario, Uh where it starts as internal monologue and becomes external monologue as he becomes more animated. Uh, In my case, it was about uh, wanting to have a Red Onion because I deserve nice things. Sure. In Son of Satan, it's when he gets to the part where he thinks what his own name is, and he goes, Son of Satan! Mm. But... Do you like the idea of using your own name as an exclamation? Behold or be gone? It's not such a simple answer because I don't like it, but I do it. You do? Yeah, when I fuck up something, (laughs) I say my own name disparagingly. Okay, gotcha. You don't do that? No, I do. I hadn't thought of it that way. I was thinking it was more of a, I don't know, like swearing by Odin's beard or whatever. I think I would have to use my full name to do it that way. like. I see something that I'm shocked. The color drains from my face. Close up of me. Nathaniel Dimitri Hubbard. Oh, it did have a touch of disparaging in there. Yeah. And I think that is because that is how I normally use that. Yeah. yeah. It's no. like, oh, It's Nathan. never positive. It's, it's a, oh, you've done it again. <laughs> you beautiful bastard. <laughs> me. I'm a beautiful bastard. <laughs> and I've done it again. Yeah, no. Like, I uh, forgot to bring a ladder. To the job site and uh it was far away uh-huh. i was really mad at myself i said damn it Corey." yeah you know but i th- i think it would have more impact if you 
could train yourself to get rid of the damage, then I think it could bring it into the realm of not just self-denigrating or self-chastising, but also self-aggrandizing. <laughs> it's like you're swearing an oath by yourself. Mm. So I think that would be like overall a net positive if you could bring it in that direction. I'm going to give it a behold because I like the idea of not only referring to myself in a negative context. It's probably healthy <laughs> to every now and then. Like if I cook something particularly delicious. Just throw both hands in the air and fists over your head and say, Corey! Yeah, well, I do that without the shouting my name. Usually it's like one fist bump if I take if I make something really good, but sometimes I'll spin around in a circle doing that. <laughs> it's awesome. I, I gotta say, I recommend it does kick it up a notch if you throw both fists up there over mm. your head. Full victory fist pump, double fist pump. Yeah. Corey! <laughs> or in my case, oh, it would be weird if I said Corey when I did that. Yeah. Okay. I mean you can if you want. It's, it's flattering. Yeah, I'll take it. We could try to start swearing oaths by each other. <laughs> <laughs> by my brother's beard. Yeah, I got one right now. Uh-huh. By Corey's glasses. Yeah. All right, so a pair of beholds. Mild beholds. Yeah. A, be- a pair of uh, beholds. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Corey, every issue of a Defenders comic, including this one, has a best defender and also a worst offender. In this issue, who did you have as your best and who did you have as your worst? Well, we had, what, three to choose from that made an appearance? Yeah, I mean, defender's rules, we can fudge those lines a little bit, but uh, in terms of actual official defenders, yeah, we've got the three. All right, so taking that into consideration, I had Patsy for not giving up on her writing is the best. Mm-hmm. And Damon, for all the reasons we just talked about, is the worst. I also had Damon as my worst. I flirted with the idea of giving the best nod to fake Damon, in part because I thought it would piss Damon off. Oh, I like it. Uh, and also, it really did amuse me, the idea of him being caught and being like, hey, you're pretending to be me. No, I'm not. You're pretending to be you. And making a like, hmm, is is this working? Face. Mm -hmm. But I think where he is acting in diametric opposition to the actual defender that does appear in this issue, I don't think we can really make an argument that that guy is a defender. I also thought that uh, Serafa Thames did a good job, but along similar lines, she is, despite the fact that I find myself more in agreement with her, the opposition rather than a defender. So, uh, yeah, I ultimately went with Gargoyle because he uh, brought Patsy a nice mug. And uh, when you're writing something, it is nice to have a hot beverage. It's also nice when people bring you a hot beverage. That is like a really, that just makes you feel cared about. It does. Or a beer. Yeah, just any beverage. Mm -hmm. Or just like a little shiny object, if they're a crow. (laughs) Yep. It's just nice. Yeah, thanks, bird. Yeah, you're all right. Yeah, you're not all so bad. Getting your VW and drive off. No, that's clowns, not crows, Corey. Oh. I mean, they both start with a C, Uh and they have a W in there, Mm -hmm. and an O. Wait a minute. (laughs) 
Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel this issue? What words did you like best? Much like you would like a pie if it were not made out of steel. Thank you for asking. You're welcome. Was it me or were there a lot of words like relative to other issues? There was more. Yeah. In this, right? It it was a more caption intensive issue than we are used to seeing, especially as of late. Yeah. So lots to choose from. But I went with the fight scene between the two daemons. And it was uh, just a couple words in here. I don't usually say. Uh, oh, are they racial slurs? <laughs> no, I would not choose that. Well, I didn't think you would. I... Page 13. Two corsicating trails of nether flame roar outward, meet and explode. When the effulgence dims and dies, we too are sprawled upon our backs. And that's that really dramatic scene where they both zap their nether tridents together and <laughs> blow up. Yep. That's what happens when you shoot nether flames out of your nether trident at the same time. Don't cross the beams. Oh, boy. That was the uh, alternate ending to uh, Time Cop. So I had the little speech that you gave that had all of the words that you don't normally say. Uh, <laughs> Stop it with all this damn effulgence. You and your corsucating nether flame. Nether trident. So this is the scene where Damon is summoning his obsession with Patsy to give him strength. But the way that he phrases it, I do actually really like. He says, So I call upon the decency and debauchery, the beauty and deformity, the god and the devil, all the contradictory seething forces within that make me what I am, and I channel them outward against a foe. Doesn't make a ton of sense. But I like that I thought it was well phrased. Maybe it's like a dynamic tension type thing. You know, like when you get an Irish coffee with a stimulant and a depressant in it. Draws your mind taut and firm and makes you smarter. Maybe that's what's happening inside Damon there. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Probably. (laughs) He's had a lot of Irish coffees. Does a Jaeger bomb have the same dynamic tension as an Irish coffee? Because I don't feel like those make me smarter. I mean, I haven't done one for, oh, 10, 15 years, maybe. Well, and hasn't that made you smarter? Not doing them? Yeah, but you could not do them unless you've done them. That's not true. You can stop doing them unless you've done them. There you go. Okay. Sorry, I haven't had a Jagerbomb in a while. Yeah, kind yeah. of dumb. I think it does have the same kind of dynamic tension. I don't think that makes you necessarily smarter, but it does make you more. Let's, um... In a future episode, let's have, put that to the test. Have some Jaeger bombs? Yeah, we'll see how, <laughs> how it goes. Okay. I'll, I'll do it, Corey. Oh, yeah? Yeah. All right. We have to buy Jaegermeister. And Red Bull. Ugh. Ugh. I'll bring the Jaeger. Okay. Okay, we'll do it. Maybe not next week, but soon. And for the rest <laughs> of our lives. <laughs> oh, my God. Behold or be gone. <laughs> be gone. Be gone. Be gone. <laughs> What was your favorite sound effect in this issue? Despite that I hate what it was, the sound of Son of Satan punching that pot of risotto made it very satisfying. Wang! 
I had that too because I was like, oh, it's nice because it's descriptive of him because he's being a total fucking wang. Uh-huh. With two ends, so it's got a real ring to it. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. I also liked when he got stabbed by a trident and it made the noise sick. <laughs> With three S's and three K's. <laughs> Not bad. Just a uh, sick. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. We got morning doves in our neighborhood. Oh, I thought that was an owl. I know it sounds like an owl, but no, it's morning doves. Is it like a morning with you or a yeah. early? Yeah. Oh, because they sound sad? I mean, that's what it sounds like when they cry. <laughs> uh. Corey, mm-hmm. let's have ourselves a battle of the band names. Wow. Ran out of uh, breath with the names on that one. It's okay. It was loud. That's the important thing. Yep. What band names were you able to find in this issue? I have four options. Oh, wow. I actually had uh, trouble coming up with some. So uh, why don't you uh, bookend us? What were you able to find? I am going to start with my, probably my favorite one, which is uh, probably a hip hop collective of some sort, which is called the Georgetown Hoopsters. (laughs) Ooh, the Georgetown Hoopsters is pretty good. Uh Uh-huh. Maybe they like, are like the Harlem Globetrotters and... They're just an all-whistling band. <laughs> but instead of just doing Sweet Georgia Brown, yeah, they do just, like, all kinds of whistling covers. Wow, okay. Yeah, Georgetown Hoopster uh, whistling band. Or, conversely, they could just do all different covers of Sweet Georgia Brown. What was your second band name? This phrase came up already, but they are called Decency and Debauchery. Ooh. Double sacked? It's like a Peaches and Herb situation? Yeah. All right. Yeah, I think so. Nice. Do they, like, dress thematically? Like, uh, what was that in the Batman Forever? Was that uh, Drew Barrymore and Deborah? I can't remember who played the other one. Like, Sugar and Spice. One of them dressed like Angel. One of them dresses like the Gargoyle. <laughs> <laughs> no. I think... So... Fuck, it just went out of my head. I had the whole thing for it. No. Oh. Still nothing. That was like an empty sound. (laughs) (laughs) Just white noise. Well, maybe you're making a cappuccino in there. Um, I could use use that. I have also one that comes from a phrase which we've heard already. When the effulgence dims. I think they're a good band. I think they're a a trifle pretentious, perhaps. Maybe. But, uh... (laughs) Very influenced by the Velvet Underground, for sure, but not as good. Mm. But, uh, yeah, when the effulgence dims. Mm. Yeah, I feel like band names that most people would need to Google or look up are bad. There's a local band called the Angry Orts that were pretty good, and that's a word that uh, really, I think, only exists for crossword puzzles. What's an ort? A table scrap. The Angry Table Scrap? Yeah. I don't get it. I don't either, but uh, you don't need to get a band name. I've often found that the best bands have the worst names and vice versa. I think that debauchery dresses like the drunken cobbler. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> okay, well, that that is a hell of a look. What is decency dress like? Oh, probably like just a cleaner version. 
Oh, the sober cobbler? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a piece of cobbler? <laughs> the dessert? Yeah. You can't. How do you? It's, it's a complicated costume. <laughs> oh my gosh. No. No? No. Okay. No, just like old timey clothes, but like, like proper and put okay. together. Well, like, remember in the video for Lunch Lady Land when Sarah Silverman played a uh, chocolate pudding? Nope. Okay. I'm just saying a person can dress like a dessert if they want to, Corey. Okay. Okay, what other band name did you have? These two both are the type of metal bands that have the really squiggly name writing that is hard to read. Gotcha. One is called Quest for Eternity. Ooh. And the other one is called Unhallowed Path. Oh, boy. Unhallowed Path is really good. Can you see They're, it they're both the... good, but Unhallowed Path, I think... That's the one that I'm surprised that's not already a band name, because that sounds so much like a metal band. It is the name of a song Ah, by a band with that same spidery type font. That's pretty good. The other one that I had was The Nether Flames. <laughs> it's like when you when you light gas. Yeah. Oh, I thought that they probably just had songs about venereal diseases. <laughs> oh, that's probably both. Yeah, probably both. You're oh. right. But I think Unhallowed Ground is probably the best actual band name that we've heard today. All right. You, you okay with we'll go with that? Yeah. Let's, let's go with Give that. me a second. Let me write it down. Does that mean it was never hallowed or it was and then it got like downgraded? I think it was never hallowed. I think it would have to be like deconsecrated ground or deconsecrated path if it had been hallowed and then was made not hallowed. Mm-hmm. There's a lot about paths I don't know, Corey. Yeah, me too. Mm. What was your favorite panel in this issue? Strangely, they both had Damon. Well, law of averages, most of the panels in this issue had Damon. Yeah, and they both have that quality that you mentioned earlier where there's really good use of shadow and, and lighting and just to give it a gloomy appearance one is called sad damon it's on page eight where it's just a close-up of his face it's kind of drenched in shadow Mm. he looks so thoughtful i had that one too and that is actually not damon but quote damon unquote and that is the one where he is thinking go please just go away and i love how that is drawn and i also love the different context that that one tiny panel lends to the entire rest of the issue. Uh, I thought that was incredibly well done in a number of ways. That was definitely in contention for me for favorite as well. My other favorite is on page 17. It is the close-up of Damon's face as he is about to get stabbed by his doppelganger's nether trident. (laughs) But it is just... A really cool close-up of Damon's face, and it's really nicely drawn, and there is almost an acceptance of like, yeah, go ahead, fucking do it, on his face that is tough to pull off. Like, he he is angry and surprised, but the defiance is kind of gone from him for maybe the only time in this comic. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was really cool looking. Yeah, good job, art people. Mm -hmm. I had another one that was uh, page 22. And it's towards the end, I called it Sad Street Walking. Oh, the silhouette mm-hmm. of him walking down the street, not actively engaging in prostitution, as street walking might imply. Well, you don't know. He's not a professor anymore. He's got to find new work somewhere. Yeah. 
Sex work is work. Yep. Work is work. Good for you, Damon. So I don't think that's what he's doing. I don't think so either, but uh, it captures the quality of nighttime. Mm-hmm. Everything's drenched in shadow. The background's deep purple. It just looks cool. Well, and he's walking away from a row of houses in suburbia that are all very much the same. It looks like a row of townhouses. Mm-hmm. And it really does show that he is leaving the possibility for that kind of normal life behind him. Yeah. And his cape's billowing behind him and all the trees are naked of their leaves. It's just a very gloomy, like, he's probably humming, here I go again on my own, that white snake song. Oh, totally. Totally. He's going to take a little break and drape himself over the hood of a car later. Uh-huh. <laughs> like Tani Katane, trying, trying to, to recapture that moment. Get his groove back. Yeah. It's not working. No. Like a drifter, he was born to walk alone. Yep. Yeah. Well, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? What were the two that we came up with earlier about uh, clowns and... Oh. I thought those would be pretty good. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tiny accessories are no good. No tiny hats. No tiny hats or backpacks. Uh Uh-huh. If you're gonna punch risotto, you have to do it with the assumption that everyone in the room is pregnant. Yeah. So those are probably the Hulk's rules. I think those are some excellent rules. I went a little more standard with my initial one. I think those supplant what I had. Mm. But what I initially had was in order to really love somebody else in a like a very healthy way, it's best if you do some work and kind of figure your own shit out and know yourself first. Mm. I mean, that's good. But, you know, it doesn't tell you what to do in the face of risotto punching. Yeah, no, no. The new ones, that's why they are overtaking the more practical. I'm going to go with you and then say that those are those new ones are the Hulk's rules. I initially was going to go with the Hulk kind of cribbing something from the introduction to Kurt Vonnegut's Mother Night, which he had seen reinforced in this issue, which was you are what you pretend to be. So pretend to be something good. You see the one character uh, we don't have a name for the prank demon mm-hmm. um, was trying to pretend to be. Damon Hellstrom, mm-hmm. so you know, bad job there all around. Didn't work out too well for him. But also, we saw that uh, before, the actual devil, deep down, is God, maybe? And there was that whole rigmarole. It's all the same. But then you see, he's still creating prank demons whose life is going to be entirely torment. So, whatever it is he is deep down... He is pretending to be an evil dude, and that makes him evil. So, uh, you know, you are what you pretend to be, so pretend to be something good. But you're right. The the real rule, the real takeaway here is... uh, No tiny accessories. Appropriate-sized hats and backpacks. And if you're gonna punch risotto, you have to do it acting under the assumption that everyone in the room is pregnant. Mm -hmm. And those are the Hulk's rules. Clearly. <laughs> I don't know what else they could be. Salud. Well, Corey, I have just one further question I have to ask you. In the year of our Lord, 1983, and the month of our Lord, April, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Wong finds himself in Mexico City 
because he is enthralled with a singing competition that is a kid's singing competition. Oh. Contestants can only be up to the age of uh, 13. It's a charming thing to see all these these it's kind of like uh like the competition shows that we have now for okay for singers but it's a huge huge event. This is the second installment of it. The first one was in 1982. This one ran April 3rd, 83 up to 1st of May. And he was there for the whole time. He caught every act. He was a little bit disappointed in the outcome. He thought that uh, artist by the name of Priscilla, who had the song Mi Burrito Querondon, which is like means like my sweet, my sweetest burrito. Um, well, that should have won. Should have won. Obviously. Yeah, it, it didn't. didn't get first place. It did come in second. It's, it's about a, a, a donkey that's uh, jilted by this mule. <laughs> oh, poor guy. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's what he was doing. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Well, that may be part of what Wong was doing. Juguemos a cantar. That's the, uh, the That's name of the, the show. Oh, yeah. Very nice. or the, it means let's play singing. When you were saying that there was a teenage singing competition, I was like, wait, did Wong join Menudo? <laughs> but, uh, Too old. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Mm-hmm. Well, that may be one thing that Wong was doing in April of 1983, but it wasn't the only thing. Other than that, he was, along with Steve, having their goddamn minds blown and dealing with the aftermath thereof. Mm. See, it's been reported that on April 8th, David Copperfield made the Statue of Liberty disappear for a group of 20 tourists. Mm-hmm. But that's not entirely accurate. He really made the Statue of Liberty disappear for a group of 18 tourists, Wong and Steve, Mm. who were definitely not tourists. Mm -hmm. Now, Steve, being a magician, probably should have known that this was an act of illusion and not a real magic trick that was being done. But David Copperfield is a fine illusionist, and the illusion was so convincing that Steve freaked the fuck out. Mm. And he picked up David Copperfield by his lapels and said, You have to put it back! We need that so badly! And I think everyone was a little bit taken aback by Steve's vehemence. And the reason was, I think we've discussed before, Steve took Billy Martin on a trip through time before to go see Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. And that led to Billy Martin punching a. Marshmallow salesman, I think. Uh-huh. Something along those lines. Uh-huh. My memory of things that I've said in the past is very iffy. Uh-huh. But uh, Wong was very moved by that encounter. And, uh, you know, this is 83, so Ghostbusters still hadn't come out yet. But he wanted to see the sequel. So he had traveled forward in time again to 1989 and watched Ghostbusters 2. And... The Ghostbusters need to have the Statue of Liberty to uh, drive it around town, make everybody feel good about themselves, so that uh, they can defeat Vigo, the Carpathian. Right. And so Steve sees that the Statue of Liberty isn't there. He's like, no, what will the Ghostbusters do? This is horrifying. I don't want Vigo running things. He seemed like a real jerk. When I found out about Vigo, the master of evil, well, he tried to battle my boys. That's not legal. 
<laughs> and Steve said that aloud, and David Copperfield was like, okay, okay, I'll put the Statue of Liberty back, which he was going to do at the end of the trick anyway, because it hadn't really gone anywhere. Right. But uh, a young Bobby Brown overheard Steve say that speech, and he ended up incorporating that into the lyrics of On Our Own, the theme song from Ghostbusters 2. Wow. And that's what Wong and Steve were up to in April of 1983. What a musical time. <laughs> Indeed. <sighs> I recently picked up the novelization of Ghostbusters 2. Ah, uh, Alan Dean Foster? No, sadly, I don't remember the Pierce name. Pierce Anthony? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I haven't read it yet, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining me. I had a surprisingly good time talking with you about this comic book. Me too. We'll be back next week to talk some Teen Titans. Uh, we'll be picking up the Lonely Place of Dying storyline that we started covering with Alana Eleven last week. And I'm looking forward to getting your thoughts on that. So far, so good. But uh, we've both been burned by good starts to Marv Wolfman storylines before, so... Fingers crossed. We'll see. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. We did get another noteless check for $12 the other day, which uh, I don't know what it means, but I like it. So, you know, keep, keep them coming. Do you think we have... A copycat $12 check sender? <laughs> or is I, it the same mystery person from last time? I should know that because it is a check. <laughs> and I could look into it, but I like to think that it might be a copycat. I could check the postmark, too. I could. Unless they're going to different cities to send the checks. Oh, the fiend! Yes. Boy. I keep on fiend one, fiending. One thing's for sure. They are pranking us, but good. And if there is a copycat out there, oh boy, that would teach us a lesson. If we got more checks for $12, I, I would lose my shit, Corey. I know. Oh boy. Thank we can you. also be reached electronically, as this is the future, at ttwasteland at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, we're up on the socials media, the Twitter, the Tumblr, the Facebook, all of the places you would expect to see us. We're there somewhere. But hey. If you can't find us there, there is one more place you can look. Corey, where's that? Oh, that's in your heart. Oh, that's right. We'll be in there. We always have been. What are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? I am going to be finely dicing some shallots to make a delicious risotto. Mmm. With maybe some mushrooms and, uh, I don't know, I might throw in lobster at the end. Oh my god, where are you getting a lobster? Maine? You're going to Maine to get a lot? Maybe people's hearts are in Maine. Well, yeah, it's like the, uh, wait, no, that's not what it says on the license plate. Vacation land. Yeah, it says vacation land. Where your heart is. Oh, yeah, well, your heart's obviously going to be in vacation land. Good yeah, call. thank you. No, I, that sounds like a delicious risotto. Just make sure. Safety first, Corey. Everybody's pregnant. Mm-hmm. And no punching. Yeah, no. Got it. I mean, do both. Like, just don't punch the risotto to begin with. I won't. But if you do punch the risotto... No, it's gonna be made with love. Good. I think that sounds lovely. I'm gonna be hanging out in there, too. I'm gonna be hiding out from the horrific pollen apocalypse that's happening this spring. It's bad. It's terrible. It's terrible. I hate it. 
But yeah, I'm going to be in there uh, hiding out from the pollen, which I do not care for, and um, enjoying uh, some of that risotto. Sounds uh, pretty good. Awesome. Uh, normally, this is the part where I would tell you guys to uh, donate to our Patreon, and I very much do appreciate all the support that we've gotten there over the years. It has made it possible for us to keep doing the show, and thank you for it. But this month... If you have any extra time or money, there is a lot of really, really horrific legislation that is going on right now on state levels that is designed to hurt gay and trans people. And if you could, instead of donating to our show, just uh, find an agency that is combating that in some way. I know Equality Florida is one of those if you happen to live in the Florida area or want to try to stop some of the terrible shit show that's happening there. Unfortunately, there's also a pretty darn good chance that there is some really horrible legislation happening in your home state. There are anti-gay or trans laws that have either passed or are being proposed in something like 31 states right now. So I'm going to be making donations to Equality Florida, Equality Texas, and the ACLU branch in Idaho, and if you can afford to, I would really strongly urge you to do similarly. It's really scary for a lot of people, and uh, yeah, um, thanks. Yeah. And yeah, d- tell you what, instead of doing a review this week, uh, if, if you're going to write something, write to your s- state senators and local legislature and uh, let people know that this kind of bullshit isn't okay and that you are strongly opposed to it. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. And they knew it. And they knew it. It's like all of the trees are having a giant fucking pollen circle jerk, and I'm the cookie. Oh. I'm probably gonna that made me it. close my eyes and shake my head when you said that. That's how gross that was. I'm sorry. It's I'll okay. edit it out. I was trying to avoid using the phrase pollen bukkake. <laughs> Good job. Thanks. Uh-huh.